Welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we caught up with Peng Lo, head and co-founder of The Continentalist in Singapore, and Adolfo Arans, who recently joined Reuters as senior graphics editor after many years at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. It's no secret that data journalism has become more prevalent around the world in recent years, and Asia is no exception. But what does the day-to-day churn look like for those in the region when it comes to finding and telling stories with data? To better understand this, Peng and Adolfo talk to us about their experience, both the joys and frustrations of their work. We also hear about the state of accessibility and open data within the region. And finally, we're taken behind the scenes with some of their most impressive and in-depth investigations. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Peng Lo and Adolfo Arans now. Adolfo and Peng, welcome to Conversations with Data. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having us. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Yeah, and so you're joining us from Singapore, Peng, and Adolfo, you're in Hong Kong? Yes. Um, You know, conversations with data, we often uh, don't really focus on Asia, so it's really great to have you both here. Um, I wonder if we could start with you, Adolfo. Um, Talk to us about the data journalism scene in Asia. Set the scene for us. Well... I think uh, I've been in Asia since 10, ten years ago. That I think is this similar to other other parts. Maybe here is like uh, just now started, but it's uh, like uh, has been a rampant evolution. Even three, four years ago, I think it wasn't mm, so popular the data journalism. It's, it's like a suddenly uh, it's like a boom. It's like a big trend. Mm-hmm. Right. And Peng, I wonder if you could share your thoughts with us on that. And from Singapore, what have you noticed? How vibrant is data storytelling? Yeah, I think I completely agree with um, what Adolfo has said. Um, when we first started, I think four years ago, it was really nascent. There was just a couple of people we could look up to and admire um, in in, the, in their work. And definitely SEMP was one of those. Um, but I think Increasingly, especially I think the last two years, maybe because it's COVID, I'm not too sure, but data is kind of the new kid on the block. Everybody is very interested in data storytelling now. Um, And again, I think this is a comment that I've also made to other data viz professionals. Um, You know, when I first started, there was very little regional resources that I could turn to. Um, Our universities, no one taught any form of data journalism or data storytelling at all. But now there are courses in you know, the polytechnics and the universities um, teaching data journalism as a module, which is really, really great. Um, so there is this increase of demand. Within Singapore, there is a small community that's growing. Um, and we have sort of been acquainted with each other and banded together to try and foster some sort of community organization through meetup groups and things like that. And it's a mixture of journalists, data scientists, data engineers. Um, so that's been really great. And I, we've also noticed in the region, for example, 
in Thailand, there's a there's an organization that is very similar to the one I'm from, Continentalist. They are called Punch Up in Thailand, run by journalists as well, um, that does data storytelling. Um, and I know, like Adolfo mentioned, the scene is really rampant in China too. It's really growing very fast. And also, needless to say, there are a ton of data journalists in South Asia, um, people like German Batia and Rukmini S., um, you know, they're really, I think, adding a lot of, um, I guess, contributions to the scene and really um, also, I guess, challenging the ideas of what it means to, you know, practice data journalism within Asia and telling stories with that, I guess, Asian nuance or Asian context to it. Yeah, so I think it's it's a great time to be here, in essence, yeah. Great. And I wonder if the two of you could also talk about, like, what data collection and what... Um, open data is like in, in your respective countries from your experience, or even, I mean, you, you've also done some other reporting on other countries nearby. Yeah, so this is something also that has changed a lot in the recently, like, it, for example, uh, when I came here, like, well, several years ago, yeah, if, you, if you want to collect data, no way. It was very difficult. For example, for China, for China, it's very, very difficult to get the data. Also because the, the in my case, for example, with the language, right? But the, even for some, I think also changed a lot in China, in the, particularly in the latest, maybe two, three years. But if you go before, uh, before was was very difficult and also maybe the, the main problem with China is that when they give you the data it's not consistent yeah often countries are collecting data right but they're not necessarily publishing it um, at least this is what I've heard from people from the UN who've got access to certain stuff but it's so politicized right even though it's not meant to be but it is um, so yeah and and I don't know if paying you found that like where you are if Singapore is pretty good about open data or not yeah, I think that's uh, like what you just shared about the UN is also a very fitting description of how Singapore works. Um, I think the irony about Singapore is that our government is probably one of the few in the region that collects data so obsessively about nearly everything in our lives. But so, you know, we know that data scarcity is not a problem. So it's more of how accessible that data is and how often it gets opened up. We don't have any sort of, um, I guess, open information laws or access of information or freedom of information acts in Singapore. So it really is up to the government's discretion what they choose to make public. Um, and oftentimes when they do, it's in sort of pie charts or so it's already sort of summarized and rendered in some sort of PDF. Um, and even when they do re release it in a workable format and like a .csv file, um, it's not granular enough for us to make a proper investigation. You can draw a singular trend and that's about it. Um, and needless to say, like, I think really sensitive, important data that I think would really enlighten certain conversations, those never get released. Like it's very difficult to find, I think, any data around social information or even things like racial information in Singapore. Um, and I think this trend is maybe not Singapore. I think it's quite an exception in the region in terms of our, I mean, knowing how much data the government has. Uh, but I think in other regions, maybe the governments are not as 
um, detailed in how much data they collect. Um, there is also, I think, a great degree of distrust of government release data, not trusting whether those numbers are reliable or not, especially in other, you know, I guess, mainland Southeast Asian countries. Um, so people do turn to more citizen-based, like grassroots type, you know, data sources, which is why I think there are some organizations like the one we worked with in, in, in one of our latest stories, um, Open Development Mekong, um, initiatives like this in sort of you know, they, they really approach other organizations, researchers, academics to try and open up data sets for the public to use. And I think it's really important um, that, you know, organizations like that exist um, to, to, to help, you know, us, not just data journalists, but I think everyone in general. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and so I just wondered, I'd like to actually talk a little bit about you, both of you and your career paths. Like, how did you find yourself in the world, the wonderful wide world of data journalism and, and design. I study uh, advertising illustrations in the last century. So at that time, you know, it's, it's graphic design, basically graphic design, and I specialize in, in the field of illustration. At that time, and I, I didn't care about Infographic, well, and of course, data visualization, no way, because I mean, it didn't exist, you know. So the, the, the word at that time was uh, infographics. I had the lucky that um, uh, a newspaper in my city, they uh, that was El Mundo, that was uh, the second one, the, the second one in Spain, but uh, for the regional issue, uh, uh, they called me to. To, to do like a, some, something temporal, right? So I say yes, and at that time I didn't have any idea about uh, infographics or this kind of thing or data. I was in the field of uh, graphic design, illustration, these kind of things. But uh, uh, yes, uh, I can say that the first day I started to work, my my duty that they did this day was to to create a very simple uh, a chart, uh, a table. Even was a table. Uh, uh, wasn't a, nothing particular. So it was, a, I think, three columns with maybe five, six rows. And even at that time, uh, I used freehand, no Adobe Illustrator. So you can imagine. So it took me like five, six hours to do this. Uh, was a nightmare for me. So that was my <laughs> started with. So and then yeah, and then I was in El Mundo for more than ten years, and I started to do graphics. So so basically, I started to learn about infographics of so these things working in a newspaper. So then you moved to the South China Morning Post, and you started doing more interactives and and, and illustrations around data. Yes. Yes. Right. And then now you're at Reuters. Exactly. And now I'm in Reuters, but it's like a, this is my second week. And Peg, tell us about you. You founded the Continentalist. How did that happen? And what's your path into this field? 
I have to say that landing in the data journalism or data storytelling for us more specifically was completely by chance. Um, I'm actually a history major. <laughs> when I graduated from university, I worked a couple of years in local museums in Singapore, um, the Asian Civilization Museum here in Singapore, before I left that industry. And I was kind of, I guess, I had been in that for a while and I was searching for something new. Um, so I met my co-founder and he shared with me, you know, oh, that he was, he was very, so he, he is um, sort of our, also our main funder of our company. And he was a journalist before too. Um, and I think he wanted to pull together some sort of map-based platform to share information with the public about what's going on sort of, I guess, in the region. Um, and one of the main focuses at the time was Belt and Road Initiative, which was also our first data-driven um, story. Um, and I think while I was re researching about the Belt and Road Initiative, um, I chanced upon, I think quite coincidentally, um, South China Morning Post Belt and Road Multimedia Multi-Chapter Story, which Adolfo worked on. Um, and I was really awed and amazed, yeah, by the graphics when you can scroll and, you know, it kind of follows and traces the line and you kind of understand where the route actually goes, um, where the belt and road, uh, where the belt and the road was going through, especially in yeah Central Asia. And I was like, wow, this is great, you know. And and I really, really wanted to replicate that um, in in some way um, and add in the data sets that we've created and we've found. And so we iterated on that, and and yeah, and then that's that's how we Continentalist ended up in data storytelling. And Continental is talk to us a bit about the publication. It's just so people are aware. What what's your focus? Yeah, so we are a data storytelling studio. We call ourselves a studio because we also do client work, although that's not hosted on our publication. So we have sort of two primary functions. Um, but our publication, which is everything you see on continentalist.com, those are stories that are created by us just because we enjoy um, doing so and we feel that these are important topics we wanted to contribute to. Um, our focus is largely on, I guess, our mission is to bring Asia to the forefront of global conversations. We found that in the media space, um, we found, I think, discussions around Asian topics are a little problematic at times. It's always used with certain lens, for example, talking about dictatorship, authoritarianism, natural disasters, poverty, etc. And we wanted, I think, to talk about it in slightly more empowering terms um, and probably even exercise some sort of decolonization in the concepts um, and in the phrases and the words that we use. Um, so that's why we sort of, I guess, created Contentless. And at, at the start, we wanted to be very informative. We just wanted to, you know, do, I guess, very straightforward journalism, research a topic, write about it, put it out, um, not really adding, I guess, you know, um, any calls to action at the end of our pieces. So I think two years ago, our team decided that we wanted to do more. So we've decided to be really cost-driven in the content that we create as well. So we really select, um, I think, a handful of topics to focus on, for example, social justice issues, climate change, um, you know, cultural, societal issues. Um, so those are the things that we've now focused on. Um, and, and we always end our pieces with a call to action, encouraging people to, you know, support a certain initiative or to investigate a topic further. And we often also partner with a lot of these nonprofit cause-driven organizations. Um, and in our past, we've, you know, partnered with, for example, UNHCR, Doctors Without Borders, and most recently as well, Oxfam. Yeah. 
So that's kind of, you know, what we've been doing. I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about, um, you know, both of your pieces that I've, I've found to be very interesting. Adolfo, you worked on this piece looking at Hong Kong's shoebox apartments and people essentially living in cages, living like prisoners almost. And the illustrations you did for these were incredible. And I love the time lapse on Twitter. So just talk us through how this piece came together and what what you what your role was in it. We started to do this in August last year, I think. So almost one year ago. Um, but the government announced that the, that the uh, new rules about the subdivided uh, apartments, uh, subdivided flats, so they are going to try to control. So that was a big peg for us to start our real project. And, and of course, we got the, the, the help from some reporters and writers. And the most important thing for this project is that we went to to the place to visit the place and we did we did a field work that I think this is very necessary made uh, after a few visits uh, we collect of course photos video and many notes and we collect a lot of, a lot of information so what we did after that is like uh, in a couple of weeks or three and around three weeks we had uh, several meetings all together to have ideas, to expose between us as many ideas we can get. And it's not easy, it's not easy because you can get all this uh, information or the feeling, but then you need to articulate the, the story, right? And to do the, the narrative in some way. Uh, it was a very excited project. We were very excited to do this kind of, and also we, the, the topic is very interesting. It's not, not only how you display this project to the or how you um, offer this project to the reader, right? But because the topic by itself is so interesting. But the good thing is they're using illustrations, you give you give some drama and you can explain better all the all the problem, right? So I think it's, yeah, uh, everybody is very happy with that. Yeah, it seemed like a very impactful piece. And of course, housing is such an important issue that affects us all. And the whole world is struggling with it right now, especially with COVID. It seems like things have gotten more expensive, right? And yeah, so really important uh, and beautifully executed, um, if I might say so myself, like the the illustrations. And it's just almost like an anime piece, but it it's digestible. I imagine if you actually had those photos up, it would be so hard to look at as a reader. But we understand the experience just from all the, that, the interactive at the top and then yeah, the, and then the timeline you you shared, it's really powerful for the audience, I think. Yeah, this is uh, one of the things that we were discussing discussing in, in the in the previous meeting. If uh, we were planning to use photos or videos instead of illustration, but uh, I think the illustration is one that, for uh, such an amount of post graphics, is one of the characteristics that we use and love to use in uh, illustrations. So why not? So let's go within our style, and also because give some drama or it's like is I don't know, but uh, for for me it's like a more digital, as you say more digestible, right? Yeah. 
and also protecting people's identities as well, right? And their privacy, it, it allows you to do that too. Not that that was maybe the main driver, but it's it's more, people are able to consume it more somehow with, with those visuals, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, in my, in my opinion, at least. Um, so well done on that. And I've seen it widely shared on like almost every newsletter, the pudding shared it. You know, it's been it's been on so all over social media. After I invited you, I saw it everywhere. <laughs> so I was I felt like I I jumped on that moment. Um, now, Paying, let's talk to you about one of your pieces you worked on that I really found impressive. Looking at Laos and um, you know its foreign direct investment and how it's turning to this as a way to to sort of spur the economy and and what the problems are with that. Can you just talk to us about that and your process and? Also, maybe what you used, what code you used, and how you built some of those interactives throughout the piece. Yeah. Um, so this piece was pitched to us by um, our partner, Open Development Mekong, who we've worked with in the past as well um, on a topic about food security. So Open Development Mekong, they are dedicated to opening up information and access to information in the Mekong countries. Um, and they sort of pitched the story to us of trying to do something like a follow the money type story on investment in Laos. So understanding in a very micro way, not just which countries are investing in Laos, but who, like what organizations, what companies are getting itself involved in all of these infrastructural developments in Laos. Um, the, pro the process for this story was incredibly tedious. I, it took us nearly a year to work for, for on it from start to end. Um, and the major component was really compiling the data. And, and I mean, this is sitting on top of all of our you know other work, right? Um, and compiling data always takes so much time. So we had to identify a lot of like, I guess, major data sources that had already, I guess, their own repositories um, on tracking sort of infrastructural developments in the region and also foreign investments. So there are quite a handful of organizations that do this really well, but they all collect it slightly differently. They have different categories. They sometimes spell project names differently. So we had to compile all of this and clean it. Um, and it was really the cleaning that was super, super tedious. And I remember at some point, like earlier this year, I was almost done. And then our partner said, hey, one of these data sources updated their data set to like, like it was a two-year gap that they updated. And I was like, oh God, now I need to go through that one more time. Um, and then after we've compiled all of that, we had to compile a list of companies that had been named um, in these projects and start to also research these companies. So we searched for information like where they were founded, um, who owns these companies, who are the stakeholders in these companies, to then get a really complete picture of who's connected to what. Um, so that was kind of the bulk of, you know, the, the, the time that taken up in the story. And that resulted also in this sort of network graph, which is one of the main pieces um, of data visualizations um, in that story. Um, so for, and in the end, like designing it and writing it was like, you know, 1% of the time that we actually invested um, in, in this project, but we're very happy with the outcome. Um, we used Flourish um, to do a lot of the, I guess, the breaking down of the projects. So we used the survey template of Flourish, which allowed us to sort of give each project a little bubble of its own, which you can click um, and I guess read further information about it. We also use that to then also identify the companies, um, the multitude of companies, and we segmented, we use Flourish to like sort of 
categorize it and bin it into different types of companies, like if they are publicly listed, if they are state-owned, um, etc. Um, and we also we also one of the key pieces in the in the story we really wanted to show the landscape of Laos because it's a really mountainous country. Um, so and that sort of influences its decisions of why it decided to do like major hydropower development investments because when you have a lot of mountains, you have rivers and you have gushing rivers that you can sort of harness its, you know, energy for, yeah, energy, electricity that you can sell. Um, so we also decided then we would start the story with that. So one of the key pieces when you scroll into the story is this, you know, huge opening. And we love this new 3D function from Mapbox where you can sort of really render the mountains as though you're kind of journeying through them. Um, and, and so that's, you know, sort of one of the influencing decisions for why um, we put that at the start of the story as well. And it almost feels like you really have to work with a partner on the ground to find out what's really going on, right? It's like coming at this without doing your research and not working with an organization that knows where the data is or knows the scene. It feels like that's what you have to do to be, a, you're almost an anthropologist slash I don't know. Um, his, yeah. You're a social scientist, really. And, I mean, not that other journalists aren't, but I think in the West, maybe we're a little spoiled with the amount of data we have and the access to it. We don't take advantage of it like you guys are doing. Yeah, I, I think it was very important for us to partner with um, Open Development Mekong for this piece because they could point us to all of the right. Um, resources and they also have an operation obviously they have so they have chapters in each country um, and we spoke to you know some of their employees and they gave us some of their perspective of how they think some of these investments have been influencing them they also pointed us to a lot of resources and I guess news articles of how certain laws have changed to encourage foreign direct um, investments or to encourage like a stronger foreign presence in the country. Uh, but obviously still a lot of it was desk work. And admittedly, you know, myself, I, I didn't travel to Laos to do the story. But I think um, why we were quite, even though it was a really long still project and we were quite dedicated, I guess, to pushing through with it is because we feel very strongly that Laos is a country that gets very little regional coverage in the news. Um, and it's not like a one-off thing. Like, I guess you can write articles about, oh, you know, today we have this dam opening or, you know, this so-and-so have invested in this Idaho hydropower dam. But I think as a whole, it's hard to get a perspective of how in, over a long period of time, how these developments have a very real impact on people on the ground and allows like, you know, villages who are displaced, um, how it affects the river flow and, you know, food security, um, and even if a dam breaks, for example, who would to pay the price? Like who would to assist these families, you know, um, to find new housing? Who would, you know, follow up with the deceased to ensure that they are fairly compensated and things like that? So, and even culturally, right? Like having, I think, a large number of Chinese workers in the country like Laos would change the social fabric of the country as well. Like more people would turn to Chinese language as a form of education, etc. Um, and, and these are the material things that I think are the very real changes that we also wanted people to understand, um, which is why we decided to, okay, you know, it's it's good for us to invest some time in gathering this data and um, synthesizing it in some way to, to give people a more complete picture of what type of investments are going to Laos. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I just wonder, both of you, if you could talk about, like, how is impact important for 
you know, maybe when you were at the South China Morning Post, Adolfo, was impact something you guys were thinking about when you were choosing what stories to, to focus on or what to visualize? Were you thinking, how can this impact our audience? Is that something that went into your ideation process, brainstorming, meeting, morning meetings? I think uh, we used to to try to figure out how is going to impact the, the story. Sometimes we expect that some story is going to be very, very well, and it's not very well. Uh, <laughs> this is it's like a, a mysterious for me, how, how we can impact the, to the, the people. I think sometimes, like for example, this the, the case with the books, uh, we notice we, we have this feeling this story is going to be very well, right? But Evan was was very well, but who knows? Maybe it's going to be a completely disaster. To be honest, the, sometimes my feeling is like a, it's a lottery. So it's, uh, even in the social media, uh, Sometimes some topics are very massive, uh, followed by the people and the people love, and other times are not so popular. It's not easy. Yeah, we don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> and paying, what about you guys at The Continentalist? Is this something, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have to choose your work carefully, right? Yeah, um, I think we we have less of the, I guess, the news cycle pressure that, that you know, Reuters or SEMP would have and feeling that pressure of needing to make a splash with the piece, uh, making sure it goes viral. But we do feel that pressure sometimes when we have like a big partner and you know, months and months have been invested on both sides on a story. And we really want the story to, you know, have good, I guess, traction and have people talk about it. But as uh, you know, Adolfo said, like these, some of these things are hard to control. There's some topics that I think that just naturally resonate with people. Um, I think because there's a lot of like, you know, like a topic like housing, for example, it's something that impacts everybody, right? But you know, a topic like investments in, you know, another country, it's hard to get people to say, hey, yeah, you know, like that really resonates with me. Um, but it's still important to tell. Um, so we do try our best to, like on our part, we try to, I guess, invest some time in in making sure some pe pieces get like a wider reach. So we try to email, you know, organizations that we think might be interested in the article and encourage them to share it as well. But I think for us, we are more concerned about like read time. So that read time is something that we, we look at as a metric um, to ensure that people kind of, if they don't finish the piece, then at least they're, you know, like covering good ground of like that article that we've written. Um, we also, I guess, try to monitor social media, what people are commenting and saying about it. Um, some people, like some topics, again, because they resonate more, people um, are more forthcoming with their sharing. I think for us, I think that evergreen quality to a lot of the pieces is important. And that's also how we decide whether or not we should put, I, I would imagine it's the same because if you're going to invest, you know, three or four months in a piece, you, you, you want to make sure that that piece stays relevant beyond a day or even a week. You want people to come back to it and look at it and say, hey, this problem is still there um, and this information is still important and insightful. So we tend to work on topics that we know will have a long shelf life. Yeah. I mean, I agree with the, yeah, it's like, a, for example, the stories that are, the evergreen stories are like more suitable to have more successful 
uh, of course, uh, public interest stories. But uh, the, also the other thing is that I, I forgot to mention is that many many times the projects is not about is not only about to to be to to have a, a, a very good impact. Uh, sometimes is that you need to to do a service, a journalist service, and that's it. You know. Uh, it's like a, it's when, for example, when the COVID started, we we started to do that, to work with that. So you know, in the, the first day, and that's that's it. It's like a, you don't know, you don't know at, at that time, you don't know how it's going to evolve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, public service journalism definitely had its moment during COVID, <laughs> and and I, I'm sure it's still the case in Asia, as we you know chatted about earlier. Um, that that's still a, a critical topic, but I wonder if we could talk a bit about your skills. Like, what I'm I'm curious, what languages, what coding languages do both of you know, and what illustration skills do you have? What data analysis skills do you have? Like, what are your, what's in your toolbox? What do you use regularly? What do you want to learn? A good side. My coding skills is very little, or or maybe I, I will I will say better. I don't have idea about coding skills, so no no idea. Luckily, I have. <laughs> luckily, I have a, a team. I had a team at SMP that they they have, and all mostly of uh, all uh, SMP uh, team. All of us coming from graphic design, more artistic. Uh, background so yeah, the code, the coding skills uh, wasn't it's not the, the best of us okay and what do you use what's your platform what do you work on um so for me i use um i use obviously google sheets a lot <laughs> google sheets is like a best friend and of course flourish as well i think when flourish was first like introduced to the data scene Continentalist also was kind of created around the same time as a company. So I, I always feel like kind of, kind of kinship with, I guess, the growth of this data tool as well. We really use it a lot. Um, and I think they have added a lot to, I guess, the features that they have, that we also often use it as sort of like a storyboarding tool or an analytical tool as well. So we kind of, you know, create quick charts um, with Flourish to kind of generate some initial ideas. But I think a lot of it still comes down to Figma as well. So personally, like Adolfo, I do not know code at all. I don't write a single line of code. I, I guess if, if you want to stretch it, I can write some HTML and some CSS, but like nothing that is necessary to build a story. Um, and that's what I've also really admired about SEMP um, that I think we've also been trying to, again, mimic a copy and like, I, I don't want to say copy, but learn from and style, which is these beautiful, like from top to bottom, it's just one giant illustration. And the, 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 so the text is added so meaningfully in certain spots and places and the annotations are also so like purposefully placed. Um, that it makes you think it's this like huge interactive, but it's not. It's actually just a really well-drawn, um, you know, story from top to bottom. And I think that's a great hack. Like, you know, to be a good data journalist, you do not need to know code. There are so many other avenues, you know, available to you. And people were doing data journalism even before the arrival of the internet, you know, with these really like beautifully illustrated graphics in the newspapers. So, so I guess it's kind of like return 
to, you know, old school style or like, I guess, back to basics in a way. Um, so we've also been trying to incorporate a lot of that illustrated style visualization in our work instead of, you know, everything needs a button that needs to be clicked. Yeah. And Adolfo, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about um, what publications or other fellow illustrators or data journalists you follow that, you know, for inspiration and paying, maybe you could jump in. I know you're, you obviously follow the South China Morning Post, but yeah. I, I, I always tend to, to surf the online, you know, but uh, for me, of course, always I'm very curious with uh, what uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, the big media are doing like this. And it's incredible, right? It's like a, another level in my case, it's like a, too much. You know, they explore many things. It's very, very nice. But also then to notice that there are other places and other other uh, media that is quite interesting. And I, I uh, sometimes, for example, the Chinese, uh, I think it's called six-tone. Six-tone is, uh, they do sometimes very nice uh, pies, like we, we can say this kind of similar to the Continentalist or the SP or Reuters, like a big standalones with that they just scroll down and coming the story, the, and this kind of narratives. And Straight Times in Asia also is uh, doing very good stuff. And, and there, are, uh, there are some, uh, the, the problem, I can't remember the, the name, but in Korea, in South Korea, there, there is some, I, I, I saw time to time, very nice um, stories, a very nice visualization, but the problem also is that no idea about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and pain. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I've really sort of, I guess, extolled why SEMP is a huge inspiration for us. Um, it really is. But I think the next one that we have been taking inspiration from recently is um, Panchak um, in Thailand. So as I mentioned, Panchak is it's very similar to us, Continentalists. Um, they are founded by journalists and they also do these sort of really bespoke um, data stories. Their style is really like very vibrant and very graphic in nature, but different, they, they don't do as much illustrations, but um, they do these like very bold colors, you know, sort of big lettering type data stories. Um, and I think it's really, um, I guess it makes it a joy to read and you really want to interact with it as well. Um, we also, I think are very inspired by Reuters work, especially I think Reuters have got like pat down really well, like these ratio comparison visualizations, they do it so well. Um, I remember the Beirut Blast story where they kind of size, you know, what's the, you know, the relative size of the Beirut Blast against, let's say, the explosion of, you know, um, different missiles or, you know, etc. cetera. Um, and, and I think, again, these are things that are like, it's just a giant image that has been placed in the middle of the story, but it's so, so well executed that it makes you think, that it's, you know, one of these interactive pieces, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, so, yeah, um, I think in terms of personalities that I look up to as well, Mona Shalabi, 
is one of a huge, like it's a huge inspiration for me. Um, I really love her very, again, illustrated approach to these visuals. And I think also in terms of the topics that she chooses to focus on, um, we find a lot of, I guess, alignment with that. Like they're all, again, very cost-driven, um, I guess, social activists or activist type topics that um, that she lends, I guess, her skill set to. Um, yeah, so, so I guess those are, my personal inspirations and also the inspirations of you know my my colleagues in in continentalist yeah mm-hmm. brilliant and um i wonder where both of you see the field of data journalism going next like any bold or not so bold predictions you'd like to share with us i think it's it's quite interesting because when I first started doing data storytelling, like the big thing was scrolly telling. And I, I know scrolly telling is still a thing. Like people are still very, you know, intrigued by it and obsessed with it to some degree. And so are we. Um, but I think it's nice to see that there's been a clear shift to do less um, and shorter articles, but still make the visuals more meaningful. And I think that trend is also very clear in the New York Times where they do these really more mobile-friendly pieces. Um, and I think that's a sign that, I mean, obviously now it's we're way past this mobile first thing. Like the default is you design for mobile. Um, and, and that's where most people are at when they're reading the news. But I think in terms of data journalism on how we approach a topic, we probably will see more people using things like machine learning and even AI to inform the data collection or to inform the data design of a piece like I mean, the pudding is already doing that. They do a lot of these like machine learning um, type stories where you can interact with the bot or you can interact with, you know, the the, the tools that they've built and, and generate something for yourself. And I think we would probably see more and more of that and, and more journalists harnessing the power of, you know, these technologies to gather data or to, um, you know, go like use it to render a piece of data to get, you know, more insights um, so yeah, that's that's where I think you know I guess the the scene will go. Yeah. And Aldolfo, do you want to weigh in here? For me, it's not easy to guess what how it's going to to be. Uh, I, I guess that the, with the rampant technology, uh, for example, maybe there will be new new narratives. Uh, maybe some new way to do the narratives. Like uh, maybe the virtual reality is going to be more used or no? Who knows? Of of, of course, this kind of thing sometimes is like, are like a some trend, and maybe it's only to be like a, for one year or two years, and after that disappear, and no one is interested with that. I think the most interesting is that uh, maybe is the normal way. So I think maybe the future of visual journalism or, visual, or data visualization is that sometimes do more simple things, more understandable things. It's all about killing your daisies, as we say, right? You know, because sometimes it's you want to do everything and you can't necessarily do everything. Otherwise, it might take you two years to do it. But yeah, it also it's a lot for the reader. The reader can't absorb that much information, you know. Likewise, like when we first started Continentalist, we really wanted to do these like flashy interactives where you can click and filter data sets and things like that. But we realized that when you translate that to a mobile experience, especially, or if you're you're trying to reach a reader who's kind of 
you know, they're busy, right? They don't have time to like play with the buttons that you've created. They just want to get the insight really fast and they want to be informed and amazed and surprised at the same time. So from that, we decided also that, hey, you know, like again, return to the basics, it's not it's not a bad thing. So it's like, you know, for the first two years of content, this, we tried so hard to like learn all these skills. So like, how do we learn D3? How do we, you know, make our charts like move and things like that. And then we realized, hey, you know, uh, you know, well-designed, well-drawn chart can do, you know, just as effective like a communication as, you know, an interactive chart. Yeah. And I think as Adolfo said, like there will be, I think, a greater move to that as well. Yeah. And based on that, just my one final question, what advice do you have for someone who is in university and maybe in a journalism or a data journalism program and wants to move into this field? Based on what you've just said, what should they be learning and what what advice do you have for them? I think it is necessary to be very interesting and to be and to find uh, a passion with visual data and with the with with telling the stories and to be very curious and yeah, to, to be really, really, really uh, be passionate with this. I think if not, it's going to be very difficult. So, uh, my feeling. And of course, you need to enjoy this 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 job. If you are going to, if it's going to, to be a pain, very painful, maybe no. I think, yeah, I think it's necessary that to be very passionate. I think from me, um, well, definitely, I think passion is a prerequisite because it's a very slow and long process that 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 is also frustrating at the same time. But I think it's also very rewarding because you get to learn all sorts of new things all the time. Um, and it's never like a dull day, like you're always encountering a new tool, a new way of, you know, visualizing something and you challenge it yourself, like, you know, each time from the last piece that you worked on. Um, but I think one advice I would give is to really be bold about experimenting and just do a lot of practice as well. Um, because I think at some point you can have, you can, you can watch all the videos on datajournalism.com, but nothing will teach you better than applying these concepts in real life. And even if you don't work for a newspaper or like a journalistic outfit, you can just start with your own data, like data about your personal life or the data of the people around you or even, you know, something as simple as your Netflix viewing history um, to just practice your skills on and, 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 you know, making sure you know how to communicate and then get feedback from that, from, you know, again, your peers or, you know, your professors and whatnot. Um, so I think it's from the doing, then you'll run into a lot of mistakes, which it's inevitable you'll run into those mistakes and you'll run into a lot of roadblocks. Um, Data visualization or data journalism is also, I think, a field that requires a lot of brainstorming and iteration. So you need to be ready to give up your ideas as well. Um, and, and, you know, guess, I guess not be as emotionally invested in them um, so that, you know, when they, when they get, I guess, cut away, you don't feel so bad. Um, but it does encourage, I guess, bringing forth the best ideas. So iterate, experiment, get feedback. Um, I guess, and and you you should be in, in good territory in, in in this field, yeah. Marvelous. And is there anything else uh, you wanted to add at all? Any other tidbits that I didn't cover? No, I, I you know I I had a really good time learning from 
from yourself and Adolfo. And, and I, I think it's really great. Like, as I said, like, it's because of, I think, a lot of the work from SEMP that um, Continentalists also decided to get into data storytelling. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm really humbled to be here. And, and I, I'm also really thankful for this opportunity. So, yeah, thank you again. Yeah, I would say the same. Well, thank you both for coming on Conversations with Data. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing your perspectives and hearing about your storytelling process. And thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.